boss. And I think I always thought, Karina, that this light switch would be there, where I could change from being this person who parties so much and has these bad habits to this ambitious, successful person that I always wanted to be. And it was absolutely brutal to come to the realization that that light switch didn't exist, that I was the sum of the habits that I had built. And that first year, as I moved back into my parents' house, I started to hit my rock bottom and lost. Welcome to Unstoppable, the podcast for anyone who believes that their past and current circumstances do not define their future potential. I'm Karina Burton, your host and co-founder of CPR Construction Cleaning. This show is a series of profounding conversations that share stories and experiences of unstoppable people. Those who are willing to change, discover what it means to be aligned, and who are also willing to face tough challenges that stand between them and their dreams. As a coach and marketing expert, I live my life believing that I am unstoppable. Now I want you to know that you are unstoppable too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. Today's guest is James Helm, who's known for being the underdog to top dog, from being addicted to painkillers for eight years to changing his life, graduating near the top of his class in law school, landing his dream job with a well-respected law firm in Philadelphia, making over six figures a year only to turn it down to start Top Dog Law. I am so impressed with what I've learned about you, James. I'm so excited that you have decided to be on the show to showcase your unstoppable story. Thank you so much for having me, Karina. And uh, I appreciate the kind words. It's it's uh, always humbling to have somebody else talk about your story, particularly when you have a story like mine that had some highs and uh, some really low lows. And hopefully I can share some of those lows with your audience. So if they are going through their own low right now, um, they know that they're not alone and they can come out the other side. You know, the beautiful thing about the concept and this mission, the statement about being unstoppable, it's not seasonal. I mean, in our sphere, in what we believe in, you live it every single day. It's something that you do. And it doesn't start from a land of opportunities that are handed to you or even a life being easy or your circumstances allowing it. It's usually coming from a place where the desert is dry or we've made choices that have put us into positions where people would think it is absolutely impossible. And, you know, thinking about this, right? When, if somebody comes onto your website and looks at your profile and is like, okay, this guy, top dog, top dog law, James Helm. Wow. He's got it made. Like he is killing it right now. He is, you know, building this empire, but there's always a backstory, which I know that it does share a little bit on your website where you came from. But, you know, give us a little of the information about, you know, where was James 
young James, right? What were you thinking about? What did you want to do? Was your dream to become this top dog attorney? So people always ask me why I went to law school. And I think it's for the, all the wrong reasons. Um, I was at a point in my life where I was supposed to graduate from Penn State, where I went to college in 2013. And I didn't graduate with my class. And the largest part of that was because of my drinking and drug use. Um, I couldn't get my classes finished that I needed to finish. And the worst thing in the world happened after college, which was that I moved home with my parents. And I left this big fraternity at Penn State where I'd spent four years going out four or five nights a week, drinking and using drugs, staying up till 3, 4 a.m. Uh, to living at my parents' house. And I think I always thought, Karina, that this light switch would be there where I could change from being this person who parties so much and has these bad habits to this ambitious, successful person that I always wanted to be. And mm -hmm. it was absolutely brutal to come to the realization that that light switch didn't exist, that I was the sum of the habits that I had built. And that first year, as I moved back into my parents' house, I started to hit my rock bottom. And law school at that time was this thing that I could show to the world that could mean so many things, but it could mean mostly that I wasn't as big of a screw up as you think I was. Like I have this mm -hmm. law school thing that I'm pursuing, this get out of jail card that's like, hey, you know, I know I go out a lot and I know that I, you know, might seem, you know, like all I care about is partying, but I'm going to law school. So like, mm -hmm. you know, that's what I have going for me. You know, it was an easy thing at a family event or a networking event with friends to say, oh, I'm going to law school. Like, oh, this person has it together. When in reality, I didn't have it together. And um, yeah. You, you know, interesting that you brought that up because a few weeks ago, I was talking um, on one of my uh, posts on LinkedIn about how, what defines you as a person? Because to become unstoppable, you really have to know who you are, the good, the bad. It's to really take a very good self inventory of who you are inside. Mm. And a lot of times people want to, I'll say most often than not, if someone asks you, James, who are you? You'll start to want to say all the accolades that define you. And when you become unstoppable, it's the things that nobody can take away from you, right? It's your authenticity. It's your integrity. It's your charitability. It is your love and compassion. Those are the things that define you and your accolades. Of course, they're very impressive and we all have these goals to achieve, but if they're gone, what happens to you? Mm. That's when people really hit this feeling of the, the, you know, what's my point? What's my purpose? Why are these things not filling my cup anymore? And it's because they're filled with things that are um, not as deep as you need them to be. They're there to be able to help you continue to rise up to your goals. But do they truly define you? So I want to talk to you about, though, as a child, you 
what were you thinking at that time? Because, you know, we all have this, this adolescent stage where we have these big dreams and I'm sure yours wasn't like, Hey, I think I'm going to be a party, a party guy and, you know, start doing drugs and start drinking. You know, what triggered those desires to fall into that rather than going down, you know, that straight and narrow path? that we all hope to go down. <laughs> we hope our kids go down at least, right? Yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. I was an only child and I felt a lot of pressure uh, to excel. And so for me, that was wrestling, which was my biggest sport. My dad had wrestled for uh, Lafayette College when they were top 10 in the country. I grew up around the sport. I was always very good at the sport. Um, and so I was, you know, eighth, ninth grade wrestling up with the high school team and that kept me disciplined, um, but it was a large part of my identity at that time. And so um, I was the president of my class. I had played football and baseball as well. Uh, so I would say I was actually on that straight and narrow up until about 10th grade. Uh, I was about 16 years old, maybe 15. And I tore my right rotator cuff. I can actually show you. I have a big scar here on my right <laughs> rotator cuff. Um, I was wrestling a kid who was the current state champion in Pennsylvania, I landed landed over my head um, and I got rushed to the emergency room. And I had one of these surgeons that did not talk to you very much. He kind of was like, hey, Mm -hmm. I'm going to come in. I'm going to cut you. I'm going to repair the the torn muscle. And then I'm going to give you a bottle of prescription pills. Um, And for me, I didn't develop a drug addiction right then and there with those prescription pills. But what it did was I took them and I realized pills aren't all that bad. That was the thing that I took for my surgery. They helped me feel better. It wasn't some Mm -hmm. thing that if I took one or two, it would kill me, right? It was like I used them. I used them in the recovery from my surgery. And then what happened ultimately when I tore my other shoulder and my wrestling career ended was I got deeper into drugs and drinking. And for me, which I think is true of a lot of high school kids, um, it was a way to be cool. It was to hang out with Mm -hmm. the popular crowd. I still remember this girl who came up to me. Um, We're sitting outside at a bonfire and she comes up to me and I'm in all like the advanced placement classes at the time. I'm the president of my class. And she's like, James, is that you? And I'm sitting there with the alcohol and she's like, I didn't know you came to these types of things. And then it was like a light bulb went off, Karina, where in the world of high school, James Mm -hmm. realized that that edginess um, would be the thing that would get him friends and the alcohol and the drugs would help numb this burning anxiety that I felt Mm -hmm. all the time. And so From that point onward, um, about 17 years old to 25 years old for me until it came crashing down and I ended up in a drug rehab, I was doing this balancing act where on one hand, I was trying to be this advanced placement president of my class, want to be a successful business guy. And then on the other hand, I was buying and selling drugs and living this double life. And I sure didn't want somebody who knew me from that kind of underworld of Philadelphia Mm -hmm. to commingle with the person that I was trying to be to friends and family and carrying that weight of the double identity 
for that long, it was tough. Yeah. You know, you probably initially became addicted to the feeling of no pressure, right? Like you're just Mm -hmm. like, wow, life feels for once a little bit easy. And in the end, it ends up being a full circle where you start feeling like this insurmountable amount of pressure because you're trying to obtain this image, but yet you're surrendering to your addiction and making choices that were obviously putting you in real serious um, positions negatively. So was that around the time you had said in 2013, you had moved back home with your parents. Was that the time that you, did you just throw up the white flag or was there something that really brought you to your knees and forced you to go home? The longer version of the story is basically I had a relationship, um, someone who I dearly loved. She had the most beautiful family. Um, she's married today and I, and I wish her nothing but the best, but that relationship meant a lot to me. And, um, finally in 2014, when I'm living at home with my parents, um, supposedly finishing up college, um, from online doing the online courses, but really just a, a shell of myself. She Mm -hmm. finally pulled the plug on that relationship and said, I can't do this anymore with your drinking and your drugs. And that was the first real consequence that I had suffered as a result of my drinking and drug use. And it was from the person that I felt like knew me the best. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, I remember my mom and others being worried about me um, because they knew I was struggling already. And then I had this thing happen. And in true like fighters fashion, I did the opposite, which was like, I got in killer shape. I got into law school. I was the last person admitted to my law school. The first semester of law school, the grades came back and I was in the top 10% of my class. So I went from literally the last person admitted to being in the top 10% of my class. And that was all because I was pushing myself, trying to feel better. And when... I did those things and still Karina didn't feel any better. That was Mm -hmm. when I got really bad into drugs again. And that was, um, 2016, um, up until the point in August of 2016, where I went to rehab, it was like, I wanted to try one last time to like be and do and show up as this like alpha version of myself that, you know, would fight back. But Ultimately, I had so much unresolved trauma deep in me that even those success, the accolades on the outside didn't cure the underlying void. And eventually that void caught up to me. Do you feel as if your mindset was just not prepared to take on the deepest challenge of getting 100% well? So Mm -hmm. you're your mindset was like, if I do, 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 instead of slowing down and healing from within. Mm. It's this, it's this idea of surrender that Mm -hmm. I always felt like my drug use and drinking was manageable. And that was really like the 
analogy for the rest of my life. I was very much like, I got this. I know you might not understand that I got this, but I got this. And I was not willing mm-hmm. to ask anybody for help. And so August, 2016, when I finally told the therapist, I was seeing that I was in so much pain, I would do anything to get better. That was the moment I raised my hand and I said, I can't do this on my lo- on my own. And after that, um, the world just opened up to me because what I realized was that my way of thinking, my way of being, my ego was not helping me and that I wanted to move from being the guy he, who thought he knew it all to the guy mm-hmm. who knew nothing and needed to learn from people who were wiser and healthier and more successful than I was. And so um, that August of 2016 really marked a transition point where it was not only me addressing my drug and alcohol issues, but I mm-hmm. reevaluated my relationship with God. I reevaluated my eating habits. I reevaluated how I treated my parents. I reevaluated my relationships with friends. I pressed the restart button and I say today, it's God's greatest gift. I got to start my life totally fresh slate. And um, that's such a blessing. When you went to rehab, was this your choice? When you had that epiphany, it was like, I'm done, literally. So I had been in Las Vegas for a bachelor party. Um, I'd stayed up all night and taken the red eye home because I was supposed to be in this legal writing seminar the following day. And I had spent the last five or seven days in Vegas. I had stayed not only through the bachelor party, but I stayed with these strangers I had just met doing drugs in this neighborhood outside of Las Vegas. I had turned my phone off. It was a really scary situation for my parents and anybody who cared about me. And Mm -hmm. what was so alarming was at the time I didn't realize it was a big deal. Like I was in mm-hmm. such deep denial slash not understanding how I was living my life. I kind of thought it was normal. And so I knew I had to show up for work the next day though. And ironically, I'm working for a judge as an employee. And that entire summer I had been smuggling in my pills through the security scanner at the courthouse. And the pills were legally in my name, but they were from a doctor who um, shouldn't have prescribed them to me. I I knew what I was doing. And so uh, what ended up happening was we got into this legal writing seminar. And for the first time in my life, I had a panic attack. It was a a withdrawal induced panic attack. And um, have you ever had a panic attack, Karina? Yes. Yes. (laughs) I don't want to say I'm familiar with them. but (laughs) It's true. I, I actually am because, you know, as life has it, I've experienced some trauma. <laughs> yeah. And and I don't know if your panic attack was like this, but but for me, I felt like I was having a heart attack. I didn't know what mm-hmm. the panic attack was. And so this happened. And I remember like opening my eyes and thinking everyone in this legal writing seminar is probably around me. The ambulance is coming. And instead I open my eyes and everybody's just in their seats and the seminar is just still going on. And I remember like without causing a big stir, like grabbing my stuff and like stumbling outside. I remember thinking that the U S marshals who worked in the courthouse 
knew that I had been this person who was smuggling drugs in. I mean, I, I had this like deep paranoia, I think, from like years of doing this. And so at the time, the therapist was the one person I trusted. And I had only seen her because my ex-girlfriend and my mom had really pushed it on me. And after two years, I can't, I still see her today, 10 years later. I love her so much. And um, she had the patience for two years to like sit with me as I gave her like BS excuses and like made no sense. But she developed the rapport with me that in that moment, she was the person I called and she asked me, are you ready? And for the first time, I felt like this life that I was protecting and this, you know, terrible mm -hmm. underbelly life were colliding and I had no control over the situation. And I was like, I'll do whatever to try to salvage the, the life that I have left. And so um, I ended up checking into rehab. Was that a very um, humbling experience for you? Because I think that there's a lot of people who are unwilling to do it because they're afraid of what people think about them. Absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And the rehab was five minutes from where I grew up. I used to drive past it every day. I remember I would tell some of my friends that I was using drugs with, like, look at that rehab, like, only quitters go there. Like, why would you go mm -hmm. there? You know, I, I had this attitude that I was too good for it. Um, if I'm being honest, even when I got there, I had that attitude. I remember I had 53 interviews with law firms in New York City and DC. I tried to be the only person that could bring my computer into rehab because I claimed I needed to use it for scheduling my interviews. I actually left against medical advice after six days because I thought that I was, you know, I was in better hands by myself. Um, now, fortunately, the one kind of thing I agreed to while I was in rehab that if I was going to leave to do these law firm interviews at these big law firms, I was going to also do a rehab after work program, which was like an outpatient mm -hmm. program. And for me, I was so stubborn in my thinking, it really wasn't until about 40 days into that outpatient program of me just white knuckling sobriety um, because I didn't want my mom or somebody to like say that I was drinking again. I knew here was the issue, Karina, is I knew if I told my friends and everybody else that I was in rehab or that I was getting sober, I couldn't then show up at like Thanksgiving with the guys at the bar and get the mm -hmm. beer. Then all of a sudden it's like, I'm a problem. Like I'm objectively somebody who's relapsing, who's having a problem. So I just was so unsure whether I wanted to like publicly commit to sobriety because then I knew I would be publicly accountable for those actions. And finally, mm -hmm. like 45 to 60 days in of doing this outpatient program and white knuckling through it, I finally got to a place where I was like, my life is getting substantially better now that I've been sober. I'm starting to really actually like myself. What if I gave this thing an honest shot? And at that point, I started going to 12-step recovery meetings and um, developing that learner's mindset. So I'm mm -hmm. glad that you kind of uh, asked the additional question because I didn't. I had the humility to go to rehab, but then even when I got there, I really still wasn't ready. It, it took me another yeah. two months of kind of white knuckling it through the process before 
I finally was able to like let my ego down a little bit and say, Hey, mm-hmm. what if I honestly try this? Was it because you felt you started to feel like the clouds were lifting that you had that desire to allow yourself to fall into that deeper and deeper into the sobriety and the, and the idea around it? Or did you have an epiphany for yourself that you were starting to change your entire mindset of what success looks like for you? I think for me, I was in deep denial about my childhood and about the life experience that I've had in terms of, you know, I remember writing down these three things, one of them being this terrible story where I was um, jumped for a lot of money and severely beat up. And this other story um, involving something terrible that I had done to a friend that I felt really guilty and shameful about. And um, I, I thought that those things would reflect on negatively on who I was and that I couldn't ever come forward and get honest and really expose the person that I had become. And Mm -hmm. I think being around that outpatient program, I saw other people doing it. And as I started to really open up my heart and open up my soul, I started to believe that I wasn't a screwed up person, that I was a good person who Mm -hmm. had gone down this really screwed up road of behavior. And that if I was actually able to look honestly at some of the things I had done and commit to being better that I still had my whole life in front of me. I mean, I always give people credit. I was 25 years old. I had a small criminal record. I was in law school. You know, I had really every opportunity still ahead of me. I really give kudos to the men and women who've lost their jobs that have felonies on their record that have kids taken away from them and they're still saying even after all that i'm still going to change my life it's still worth Mm -hmm. it because the first time is a gift and i felt like it was especially a gift for me because i was able to recognize well if i can just get a handle on this now and work to become a better person i still have my life ahead of me From what I feel that happened for you was that epiphany of, I love myself, right? Mm -hmm. Like you truly love you. And I believe, because I actually feel, even though our stories are totally different from each other, when I I was in a... um, in a emotional and financial abusive narcissistic relationship for 10 years. Mm. And when I left that relationship, I was leaving with the tiniest bit of hope that I wasn't such a big piece of shit that I felt like I was, right? Like I felt um, that I really was the biggest screw up, that every decision I ever made was always the reason why it negatively impacted my family for whatever reason. 
And I mean, I look back now and I'm like, wow, a stay-at-home mom who made no money sure seemed to have a lot of power on <laughs> effing up the family, you know, like, and I see how um, it wasn't until I said, I love me enough to save me because mm -hmm. I also saw so many great things about my potential. And mm -hmm. I was unwilling to say, this is my future. Right. And I think that's the story for anybody who's like ready to move. And, and I want to add this because maybe there's a listener right now that doesn't love themselves. Do you hear that? Yeah. What is that? I have no idea. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah. Yeah, what is happening? You know what's crazy? I didn't hear it when you were gone, and then I just kind of heard it oh when you came gosh. back. Oh my gosh, nothing. I figured it out. I figured it out. Oh my gosh, that was the weirdest thing. Oh my gosh, that threw me off. No, now you, I'm mad. you were really jammed. I'll take us right back into it if it's okay. Ready? Yeah. No, that's good. And what I want to say to somebody who's out there listening who wants to become unstoppable because that's the um, goal of this podcast is to create unstoppable people. And there's a lot of people who will be unstoppable, but right now might not love themselves. Is that the way that you build self-esteem is through esteemable acts on top of each other. And so what I realized, Karina, is once I went to rehab, I started to keep promises to myself and coming from the guy who said literally every day, this is the life of the, the drug addict is I'm not going to do drugs today. I'm not going to do drugs today. I'm not going to do drugs today. And mm -hmm. Fair enough. There I was three hours later texting that guy to go meet him again, to pick up the stuff I needed. Right. What does that do to your self-esteem? It, it kills it. And the opposite mm -hmm. is true. So if you're somebody who doesn't love yourself to say, I'm going to just create five small promises and I'm going to keep them. And then I'm going to do five small promises tomorrow and I'm going to keep them. And I think part of my transformation was over that 30 or 60 days, I kept the promises that I made to myself. And as mm -hmm. I started to do that, I started to build confidence. I started to love myself again. I started to think, oh my gosh, I really can do the things that I want to do in my life. I just have to continue down this path. Yeah. You hit the nail right on the head with the same advice that I give. If you just do five of your actionable goals, right? And these can be um, the steps that you were just talking about. You're going to get mm. to where you want to be. You just have to do the things that you are, that you're setting these goals up and, um, or else you really won't get there because we can't just have the desire. The desire is just not sufficient. It has to be with actionable steps, whether it's to our goals to uplift ourselves personally, or if it's our goals to get to where we want to be professionally or in any way, shape or form of how we want to change our lives. So I want to segue over into, you know, what you've created. So, just to give my audience a little bit of background about 
your business, you, I feel, okay. So not to be like, we are the same, James, yeah. you and I are very similar, but you, and I mean, people who know me and know my company, CPR construction cleaning, I went into that space being like, I'm not posting like anybody else. I'm creating content that is going to be authentic to me. And you have taken the cake on that. Like you've superseded all of that in your industry. Nobody is doing what you're doing. But the other amazing part about it is that not only are you creating content that is deliverable to your audience to captivate them, to help them understand your message and connect with them, but you're also doing it in sharing your story to be able to help people understand that they're not alone, mm. to not feel afraid. And you're giving them that emotional human feeling that you do not get with attorneys. <laughs> you just don't. So I want to talk about that. How did you, you know, you, you walked away from this amazing six figure position with a well-respected attorney in a, a law firm in Philadelphia, but you're like, no, because in James fashion, I'm going to do something totally different and on my own. So walk us through that. How did you get to this point? Sure. So let me say first, I think that I never would have been able to make the bold career decisions that I made had I not just gone through the process of getting sober and transforming my personal life. Mm -hmm. That is the foundation and my work that I do around my spirituality, around my health, around my sobriety. That is the foundation that gave me the confidence to make the moves professionally that I've made. And the biggest move I made was uh, in 2018, I graduated law school and I had tentatively accepted an offer at a big insurance defense firm. They offer you the sexy six-figure salary. They're the jobs that the law schools want you to take. And you know, only a fraction of the law school class gets offered these sort of positions. Maybe at Rutgers it was eight percent or something where like the top eight percent of people got like what's called a big law firm big law is like the the phrase so like got an offer in big law and so uh, i accepted it i celebrated with my parents they were happier than anybody in the world and then uh, as the time period progressed towards when i was supposed to start and they offered these positions a year in advance so i had a long window karina to think on this I started to really understand who I was and what I wanted. And I went to Tony Robbins, shout out Tony Robbins, Unleash the Power Within in 2018. And right after that, I was like, okay, I have to do this. And so I went to the managing partner of that law firm and I said, thank you, but no thank you. This is not what I see for myself. And at that point, mm -hmm. it wasn't as clean as like, I'm going to start my own law firm, which is what I ultimately ended up doing. But it was more just, I didn't go to law school for the right reasons, like I said. And I am not somebody who should be pushed down the traditional path. I'm a very creative person. I'm an outside the box person. I'm not a good detail person. I was like, everything about this career looks good on the outside, but would not be a good fit for me. And so it was the first time in my life after 
the decision to go to rehab that was like, I'm going to turn down the glitz and the glamour of what other people think because what I think is most important and I don't think this is a good fit for me. And so I did that. Um, my parents didn't talk to me for several, my mom, <laughs> my mom and I recently go back and forth about this. I made a post on social saying it was three months. She said it was not three months. It was five weeks. I don't know how long it was. It felt like <laughs> the longest time that they were very upset. And um, at the time I was angry at them in hindsight, what I realized is they were scared for me. They mm -hmm. wanted to protect me. I was making a big, scary decision and they didn't understand it. And so if you're yeah. listening to this and you're thinking about starting your own business or going out on a limb, your friends and family closest to you might not want you to do it because they love you. They're scared for you. They don't want you to fail publicly to the world. Failing publicly to the mm -hmm. world is scary. Um, and so for me, it took me about um, six months after I graduated before I had this crazy idea, Karina, that I was going to start my own law firm. And I faced every objection under the sun is how do you start a law firm? You haven't even worked in one. Like you just graduated from school. But the one thing that I knew was that most of the job of owning a law firm was bringing in business, was lead generation. And because I had worked during law school at a marketing company for lawyers, I knew how to bring in business and I knew it suited my personality very well. Mm -hmm. So my basic philosophy was I'm going to bring in business and I'm going to figure the rest of it out. And so that's what I did starting in uh, 2018. Well, that's what you've got to do though, right? It's people who want to meticulously plan out their business plan. I mean, I get a lot of those people coming to me about coaching. And then when I give them, okay, these are the strategies. I don't hear back from them because it gets real. It gets scary. Hmm. You know, if you are going to be a doer, everything I've ever done, no joke. It's like, I have a slight glimpse of what I'm going to do next, but really it is just enough to get me there and I will figure it out along the way. And honestly, I'm thinking about any other very successful entrepreneur that has started up their own company. They've done the same as people who are wanting more are wanting it. They're just so hungry for it and they just can't wait. And I think there's like that common theme with, with entrepreneurs like that. Um, so you started, um, top dog law in 2018 and where are you today with your, well, actually let me back up. You are an accident attorney, law firm, yeah, right? So give us some details of like exactly what that is that like all accidents, including physical and vehicle, or what does that include? Yeah. So, so the, the main type of case that we handle is motor vehicle accidents of all sorts, but we also handle um, slip and fall cases. We do a lot of medical malpractice work, so um, preventable medical deaths that were misdiagnosed. Um, we handle uh, sexual abuse um, and sex trafficking litigation against some of the biggest hotel chains. Um, and then we also 
um, handle what's called products liability. So when there's a defective drug that gets put onto the market or um, there's a product that causes cancer, um, we will pursue those cases against the big manufacturers with the hope that they'll change the formula or um, take the mm. products off the shelves. Um, so those are the kinds of cases we do. Um, as for kind of how my personal business changed was I started the law firm in 2018. I really got kind of going in 2019 and I immediately hit all this resistance, just like every entrepreneur does. Mm -hmm. um, for me, the biggest problem with my industry is that the clients don't pay you any money directly. You only uh, get paid in the event that you recover a settlement for your client and you get a percentage of that settlement. So the result of that from a business perspective is that you don't make any revenue until your cases resolve. And when you're talking about a slow court system, that might be two or three years. So yeah. the challenge is how do you get started in a business where you don't get paid for the first year or two? Yeah. You basically have to just float the cash. And so- Yeah, that's I, insane. Your cash I, flow is- It's nuts. Held up for even, years. Even now, <laughs> I mean, even now um, I look at it and um, just for some perspective, you know, we generated um, a couple hundred cases in 2020, 3,121, 5,500 in 2022. And um, for the last two years where I've generated the bulk of the business, we still haven't yet seen most of the cash flow coming in. So um, it's exciting on one hand, right? Because you're like, mm -hmm. my revenue based on my business that I've brought in alone should continue. You know, we, we grew by 300% last year. We should grow by another 300% this year and hopefully 300% the year after that. Um, but um, the challenge is always from a cash flow perspective. You know, I want to continue reinvesting in the future. Um, but do I want to go into debt today if I know that mm -hmm. that cash is coming in soon? Um, I just got my first, uh, I'll call it big boy credit line of 1.25 million. So I'm like, okay. Congratulations. That's you. a big yeah. deal. Yeah. <laughs> You're five of the business. A bank is finally like, okay, we trust you. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. because as a small business starter, you just don't, don't get access to that sort of capital. And so, um, I think I, I kind of took a roundabout on your question, but, um, no, yeah. I, I am curious to know, cause this is a great, you know, question for, and any entrepreneur to really wrap their head around, you know, we struggle with cash flow as well. We can go out um, 90 plus days on, you know, accounts receivable. And, and it can be so detrimental when you have hundreds of thousands. At one point, we were at, you know, 800,000 where we were owed, and, you're, and we're a brand new company in year two. We're like, we don't have this money. How do you do it? It's, and it can literally capsize you. So what helped you get through it? I don't want to say limp along, but sometimes it feels like that. Yeah. So, so two things. I think first I like beg, borrowed and stealed to get the money. And I think that, um, and I don't actually mean stole, even though, even though that's what I said, I, I don't mean that. But I, what I did do is I basically hustled and made $99,000 um, 
in sales commissions, selling marketing to lawyers, and then took that 99,000, put it into my business. I got a personal credit line of 22,000. I put that into my business. I got a high interest loan, which I would never recommend of like 60,000. I put that into my business. I got another law firm that I was sending some cases to, to advance me a hundred thousand dollars. So I was just literally going to every source I possibly could except my parents mm -hmm. because I had just made this decision. I was not going to go back and ask mom and dad for money, uh, yeah. but, and they wouldn't have had it anyway, but, but I had to figure out where am I getting this money? And so I did that. Now, the second thing, Karina, that I think is an insight that could benefit somebody listening is I also pivoted the business model. So I went from needing to staff the support staff and other attorneys of doing every case in house. So the huge overhead cost that comes with that mm -hmm. to saying, instead, I'm going to do most of our cases with other law firms. And instead I'm going to fee split, meaning when the case settles out of the attorney's fee. So the portion of the fee that goes to the attorney, we're going to go 50, 50, or I'm going to get 40% and they're going to get 60% and, or I'm going to get 33% and they're going to get 66%. And the mm -hmm. money that I'm going to make is from sourcing the lead. And what that did to me was it allowed me to operate on much leaner overhead costs, but mm -hmm. scale my marketing platform aggressively. So this year we're going to deploy $4 million in marketing uh, capital in 2023. Uh, but I was able to work up to that. So I basically just took the money that I could spend in 2018, which might've been five grand a month. And then in 2019, maybe that was 20 grand a month. And then mm -hmm. 2020, that was a million dollars. And then 2021 uh, was $2 million. And then, you know, where we're at today. And so the scalability of being a lead generation business, as opposed mm -hmm. to doing all 6,500 cases I have in my inventory right now in-house yeah. gave me a lot more flexibility in terms of access to capital. Is that one of the reasons why your social content is, it's, um, what's the word I want to use? Like, it's very entertaining. It's very like attention grabbing. And you're consistently posting, right? At your uh, your brand is. Are you utilizing that to, you know, be that lead generation for you? Yeah. So our social media platforms are, are top dog law on all channels. I think we have um, 190 thousand followers on Instagram. I try to post three to four times a day, which is a lot on Instagram. Um, we also um, have you know consistent posting across TikTok mm -hmm. and Twitter and Facebook, um, most of the kind of B to C channels. Um, I'm not as much looking for new attorney referral partners as I build out a pretty um, solid national network in terms of the other attorneys that I work with, whether that's in a different state in the country or a specialized practice area. Um, but my goal has always been to get attention, to keep attention and to maximize mm -hmm. attention. And so um, I've learned that by posting 
eye-catching videos and funny content and stuff that people normally wouldn't see a lawyer post. I could gain a lot of organic viral traffic because everybody would show their friends like, oh my God, look at this lawyer. And um, we staff our DMs nine to nine, seven days a week. Um, We field thousands of inquiries a month across social media, inbound calls, form submissions on our website. And because we have such a robust national network, we do a really good job placing the cases with the attorney that's going to really care about the case and maximize the value of the settlement for the client. Um, so that even if it's, you know, in Alaska and I'm, you know, the firm's based out of Philadelphia, I'm going to put that person with a local Alaska attorney that specializes in that particular practice area. And it's good for the client. It's good for the local attorney. And then obviously it's good for me if the case yeah out and we share in that settlement. That is, I mean, this niche of the way that you're providing, um, legal opportunities, right? Like, uh, I was going to say legal advice, but that's not what I wanted to say. Legal services. But legal services and connecting people. I mean, that's genius, honestly. And um, I don't, I mean, I cannot think of anyone who is doing that. I mean, I don't really know that many people, but I would assume, (laughs) you know, people love to do the same mundane structure of how People have been doing things are like, what's not broken, let's not fix it. But then they miss on those pocket niche opportunities. Mm. And you're obviously advancing on it and saying, hell yeah, well, I'm going to go into this space and I'm going to own it and dominate. You know, if anybody else decides, hey, I'm going to try and follow suit, you'll be um, miles and miles ahead. Yeah. And and look, it happened um, organically. I mean, I think all of us need to look at our own unique abilities and what our strengths are. And there was this moment in 2020, um, pretty recently after I had started, I, you know, I got my office going like end of 2018, beginning of 2019. There was this moment in 2020 in January where I met with another attorney who uh, is in Philadelphia. At the time, most of the cases I was generating was in Philadelphia. I was working out of an in-person attorney's office in Philadelphia, kind of what you would see in any city across the US. And he was like, you just started and you're bringing in 40 new clients a month. He's like, no wonder you keep having your support staff quit and feel like you're not sure if you can afford salary is because Mm. at that level of intake of new clients, you need 35 people at your office. Um, Mm -hmm. And you have four. You know, and so of course the paralegals you have are feeling like they're overworked and you don't have the money to go hire more because you don't have the cash flow yet. He's like, well, what if instead of this, you focus on your unique ability, which is bringing in the business. I have 220 staff members and 50 attorneys. Let's be partners without being partners. Meaning like we're each going to have our independent businesses, but you send cases to me. And then I'll keep 60% of the attorney's fees and I'll give you 40%. And like most things, you know, I'm resistant. I'm thinking, you know, this guy's probably trying to get one over on me. Like he wants all my clients. Like I, my vision was to build out my own in-house law firm. And the more I sat with it, the more I was like, oh my gosh, I think he's right. 
I think I am mm-hmm. a lot better at generating the business than I am building the infrastructure to do all the cases. And it was really over the next 24 months from making that decision to partner with him that I went from 40 a month to 400 a month. And so, okay, Karina, now I'm not getting 100% of the attorney's fees, I'm getting 40%, but 40% of 400 is a lot better than 100% of 40. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And you know, then, that's... yeah. Sorry, no, go ahead. Finish what you were saying. And that's really what what started the idea was once I did that with him in Philadelphia, then the light bulb went off like, okay, how can I do this in other major cities of the U.S. and find Mm -hmm. other people to serve in that role that he's serving for me in Philadelphia? And so um, I sort of stumbled into the, the niche organically. How, I mean, with being how busy you are and the rate that you're growing, what are you doing on a daily basis to help you to stay grounded, Mm. um, stay in that mindset of not slipping backwards ever, right? But only moving forwards, whether you have a bad day or not, like that is not a definition of what your future looks like. But, you know, when we have past, right? Sometimes we can feel like, could that ever happen to me again? What are some of the things that you do to maintain this mindset and um, this healthy lifestyle? I think when I was in the midst of my drug and alcohol addiction, the only cure to what I was feeling was to drink or use drugs. That was the way that I would escape the state that I was in, in my body. And I think Mm -hmm. over time, what I've learned is there are much more healthy ways to change your state. So I see a therapist every week that helps tremendously with changing my state. I've learned to meditate. I do the Wim Hof intense breathing. If I do that for three minutes, usually that'll change my state. I'm a crazy exercise person. I work out at least once a day, sometimes twice a day. I don't do it as much because I care about my physical appearance, although that's nice, but it's more just because I'm pretty anxious. I run high, high, I'm high strong. And when Mm -hmm. I exercise, it helps calm me down a little bit. Um, And then the fourth one is I've gotten really into um, the sauna and the cold plunge. Um, So places where you can go, you can do the alternating hot and cold. And um, for me, I've realized that all of those things help me decompress a stressful, anxious state where my body's in fight or flight. And I, I want to stop feeling the way I'm feeling. And I think that so many people, not just alcoholics or people that, you know, have addiction, um, fall into their own habits of how to change their state, whether that's drugs and alcohol, whether that's eating, whether that's gambling, whether that's sex, like, there's all these negative ways that people try to change their state. And so I think it's getting into the positive habits that, that yeah. do that for you. For sure. And that's, you know, recognizing that this is something we work on every single day. Um, I sound like a broken record when I say this, 
When you're unstoppable, it doesn't mean that you've arrived. It doesn't mean that you are, you know, already this multimillionaire, billionaire, you're an actress or an actor, whatever it may be, right? Where people are like, oh man, they are unstoppable because their accolades are defining them. Being unstoppable is saying no to anything that's telling you that you can't. And it's saying yes to your dreams. Mm. Um, and that's something that we have to work on every single day, just like eating and drinking water and doing those things, you know, healthy for us. Um, and it is sometimes that pri that the priority, is it a priority for me today to do five actionable things that will get me closer to what I want in my life? Is that a priority? Is it a priority to take care of our well-being, our health, our mindset? And if the biggest intention is, well, I want to be able to achieve whatever your greatest goal, whatever your greatest dream is, if that's your greatest intention, then you're basically saying yes to everything else to get there, right? There are these small steps, but they are so powerful and they will truly change your life. James, do you have anything that you've got coming up that you'd love to share with our audience? You're just, I mean, you're on fire. So I, uh, I really appreciate you having me, Karina. I think in these podcasts, um, I get super present. It helps me reflect on my journey and how far I've come. And I hope that I serve your audience in terms of uh, following my journey. I'd love if um, anybody listening would follow me. Uh, Instagram, it's Top Dog Law. Um, same thing on on pretty much every other social media platform. Obviously, if you're ever involved in an accident, you want any type of legal advice, just call us, send me a DM on any platform. We monitor them nine to nine, seven days a week. So you'll you'll get a quick response. Um, or on LinkedIn, um, you can follow me at James Helm, which is my full name, H-E-L-M. Um, thank you so much, Karina. Well, thank you again. Honestly, I loved hearing your entire story from what I had learned and what I knew. I was already so impressed. And the fact that every single day you continue to grow and move forward is a amazing example of what it means to be unstoppable. So thank you so much for joining. And listeners, if you loved this podcast, please leave us a review and give us five stars.